stand with us. Put all that stuff that's bothering you. All that stuff that's going to get in the way of you worshiping God. Put it down. It isn't because God doesn't care about your concerns. He does. He wants to help you carry them. But all the things that are going to inhibit your worship, you go ahead and put those down right now. And if you are able to, without pain, stand and sing with us, preferably louder than us, but we're amplified, so that means you really have to belt it out.
God, we praise you that you are God and that we are not. I thank you for the gift of the people that are here. I thank you for the gift of the people that are watching at home. Lord God, I pray that we would be able to be lights for you, that we would shine for you, that this would be all about 
you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, good morning. <laughs> Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Oh, today, I am really blessed that I've taken better notes than usual because I grabbed the wrong bulletin on the way up here. So, I'm still set, I hope, if I've ever been set. So yesterday uh, was the ACA, the Annual Conference Assembly for Mennonite Church Conference of Ohio. And I'll be totally honest with you, it was an incredible blessing. And when you meet with a group of other churches that have a tendency to believe a lot of different things, when you meet together, you really worry unnecessarily usually, but you really worry about, or I do, I really worry about people's dividing of Scripture, which honestly is none of my business. The Holy Spirit that dwells in me should also be dwelling amongst them, and I should just allow God to be God and stop worrying about these things. We had an excellent time of worship together, online though it was, and as much as I love online things and how wonderful technology is, I've spent about 16 hours in Zoom meetings over the last seven days. I have some digital fatigue going on. I have no interest in firing up a computer at this point, although I will later today, I'm sure, um, just out of necessity. But the shine is very much off that apple for me today. Um, but it was a wonderful time. The guest speaker was actually a, a, a man with all the fancy letters after his name as per usual. The difference being is after Harvard Law School and after AMBS, he went back to his tiny little congregation in Kansas, and he's the pastor there. So he's got all the, the pedigree that you could ever want from a pastor. And he's preaching in the middle of a cornfield, so I liked him already. Um, but that's not the only thing he's ever done with his life. But he was talking about, as a church, one of the same things that you do as a farmer, you should be doing as a community, which is evaluating your soil. You should be trying to figure out uh, what you're planting for based on the soil God has given you. So say the soil in Spartansburg, as much as I love Tim Keller, he's in downtown Manhattan. His tips on evangelism are going to look a lot different than what's going to work in Spartansburg, Pennsylvania. You should know what soil you're working with. You should know who the people are. You should invest in the community and the relationships within the community. And you should try to draw them to Jesus. And maybe they'll join your church, or maybe they'll join the Methodists, or maybe they'll land Baptist, and none of that matters because we're supposed to be drawing them to Jesus. And that's exciting for me. It was really great to see a group of people from all over the place really focus on discipleship and evangelism and Jesus Christ and the Great Commission and uh, John 1, 35 through 51, which is actually our verses. And it was amazing. It was awesome. And if it would have been in person, it would have been even more exciting. Because oddly enough, 
I spent from 8.30 in the morning till 2.30 in the afternoon looking at a 17-inch screen, which probably isn't as far out of normal as it should be anyway. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start and finish, actually, in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is a beautiful sermon. We call it a sermon because that's our vernacular. It's a teaching of Jesus that happened on a mountainside. And he has very similar teaching in Luke that he said on a plane. Now, truth is truth, and God is speaking truth through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is teaching, and he teaches these things, in my opinion, based on what I see from Scripture. He teaches most of this twice with subtle differences because it's probably a different crowd and people need to hear it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he preaches all this from a sitting position. That's so cool to me. Not because I want to sit down. I think I look thinner when I stand, so I think I would rather stand behind this contraption. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We wrestle with this phrase sometimes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I would read this to say, those who see their spiritual poverty, those who know that they're corrupt, those who know their own righteousness doesn't add up, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I'm going to say that phrase again. For righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This part of Jesus' teaching was counter-cultural then within the religious Jewish culture. And I think it's just as countercultural now. You have a million voices telling you what God is saying, what God told them in special revelation, or this special prayer that they found in the Old Testament where God blessed someone, and then they write a 300-page book on two lines from the Old Testament and get an entire following out of it. We have so many people that believe when God says he's going to prosper us that it means materially. Even though there are twice as many verses easily in the New Testament that tell you God doesn't really care about your wealth. 
In fact, sell it all, give it to the poor. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How many times do we see people arrogantly strutting around, flaunting the gifts God has given them, and feeling good about it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Righteousness, right standing before God. It doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for heaven or for gifting or material wealth or comfort. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the two most primal feelings you will ever have. If you've ever truly been hungry, it's been a while for me, but if you've ever truly been hungry, it's a pain. It's a want, but it's painful. If you've ever truly been thirsty, it's almost like suffocating. Until you get a drink, nothing else will ever satisfy you. That's the language it uses to describe your desire for righteousness. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness, being right before God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We love that one as Anabaptists. Blessed are the peacemakers. I think the Colt Gun Company loved that too, because they called one of their pistols a peacemaker, if I'm not mistaken. Colt 45, peacemaker. Anyway. I think within our context, we can see blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called sons of God. Why would they be called sons of God as peacemakers? Is that cluing us into an attribute of God that we should be focusing on? Trying to resolve conflict instead of fan it? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being persecuted for righteousness sake and having your television special taken away are two different things. They really are. Not that unjust things don't happen, but if you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, I'm going to say something, and I'm a very political person, and I try not to be ever up here. The First Amendment isn't in your Bible anywhere, unless you wrote it in. I'm sorry. Bill of Rights and the Ten Commandments are two separate documents. I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but I don't feel like I hear enough people say that. I'm a very patriotic person. I love my country. It is not my religion. It is not my religion. We need to divorce ourselves in our thinking from the things that we hold dear. Just because you love something does not make it God. God is love. Love is an attribute of God. Not all love is God or godly. That's a distinction we don't often make. When you say God is love, what people often hear is that love is God. And that breeds all kinds of conflict. That's just not true. Not all love is God. God is loving. God is love. 
perfect love is an attribute of God. Not all love is God. That's nonsense. I bet you've never heard anybody even talk about it before, but it's very painfully clear to me that we seem to be buying into this as a culture. Not as Mennonites, not as Valley View Mennonites, but as a culture. We're really buying into this idea that God is love. Okay, now what does the rest of it say? On two different accounts in Scripture, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The only thing elevated three times by importance. That's a lot of exclamation points if you're writing in English. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Everything God does is holy. His holy love is an attribute of God. Not all frivolous sensation we feel is part of God. I feel like I'm coming at this kind of hard, but we have all kinds of really weird universalism creeping into our belief about Scripture. I just want to name it. Salt and light. This is chapter 13, not chapter 13, excuse me, verse 13, chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can it, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt. Now this is very quoted, and that's good because it's in Scripture. Salt is a preservative. It keeps things from rotting in a culture without refrigeration. Salt's important, right? If you have an animal and you've slaughtered it, you've given up part of your wealth, you need to be able to preserve it somehow for longer than a day. Salt is very important. Salt is a preservative. It keeps your things from rotting. It helps sustain you. It also gives flavor. Also, if you're in the desert, if you don't have enough salt, you pass out. I've seen it. Salt is incredibly important. But think about just those two elements of salt. Preservative. Salt preserves something good. Salt enhances the flavor of things that would otherwise be bland. If you are the salt of the earth, you are preserving something good. You are enhancing the flavor for everyone around you. In essence, that makes a lot of sense. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Light shines most vividly when it's surrounded by total darkness. If you have a bunch of candles sitting together in a light room, you don't even notice they're there. But you shut off the lights, it becomes very clear. In fact, you can see a candle a ridiculous distance on a dark night. You can see flashlights from a ridiculous distance. If you happen to be in Fort Riley, Kansas, on top of the only hill in that state, I think, and you look over, you can see Manhattan, which, Kansas, not New York, which is miles and miles and miles away. But you think that it's just a parking lot or something down at the bottom, but it's actually miles and miles away, but you can see their street lights because there's nothing in between, and it's total darkness. We are to give light in the darkness. 
a little bit of light goes a long way in the darkness. Sometime do an experiment. Find an entirely dark room. Wait till your eyes adjust to not seeing anything. Light a match. Notice how light that room just got. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. They should see your good works and give glory to your Father. That sometimes means that they don't see you do them. They see your good works, and it causes them to glorify God. They might not know you did it at all. I know I quote this a lot. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, excuse me, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We look at Pharisees and scribes as being bad people. They're not not inherently. A scribe is someone who writes scripture all day long, and they become an expert at it. A Pharisee is someone who is externally living all the laws given in the Tanakh, from Genesis to Malachi. These aren't great sinful people. They have bad motivations sometimes, but not just good works. They're motivated entirely externally. Your righteousness has to come with, within it has to be a change of your mind. You have to desire after the heart of God. You need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That is the fundamental difference between what Jesus is saying here and what scribes and Pharisees are doing. Your righteousness has to exceed that of just external works. Your righteousness actually has to come from a changed heart, from a changed mind. That's the hard part. And as we saw in our Sunday school lesson, faith without works is dead. You will know people's faith by their works. But we don't want to just worry about our works. It's the motivation for why you're doing things. Is it an act of worship? Here's a section of scripture I believe we all have trouble with. So let's go. It'll be fun. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. How many of you have been angry recently? How many of you have been angry at a person recently? How many of you have been angry at a room full of 12-year-olds recently? I have to get over it quickly. 
I'm also incredibly blessed by them, but they're human beings of a very impressionable age. It is just a, a risk of the trade. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I've had some pretty rough arguments over the years. That seems like rather mild compared to the things I have said to people who are created in God's image. Praise God for forgiveness, right? So if you are offering your gift on the altar, there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Your hostility towards one another, your hostility towards other people will get in the way of your worship of God. In fact, Jesus is saying, go and forgive them. Go make it right, then come worship. Sometimes in churches we have 40-year arguments over the color of the carpet. Or the time someone's kid didn't come to do the chores or something when they said they would or... You name it. Even within this congregation of people who love each other and who I love deeply, I'm sure you could find a 30-year-old argument that still has some tension to it. And I'm going to be completely frank. That's demonic. I'm sorry. Fix it. Fix it. I'm not going to hold your hand and make you. I won't even know. I don't know what the problems are all the time. If you have a problem with your brother, fix it. Fix it. You think you're going to separate heavens? Fix it. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Unforgiveness is a huge problem. Don't deceive yourself. I can, I can love them. I don't have to like them. Where did you read that nonsense? No, thank you. I don't have to like them. I love them. I don't like them. That's not true. It's not true. If you have to make that decision, that distinction, you don't love them. You really don't. You can recognize their flaws. You don't have to be BFFs. You don't have to join a three-legged race. But if you have to make the distinction, I love them, I just don't like them. No, you don't. You don't love them. You found a loophole. Fix it. I'm just as guilty of this as anyone. I spent 30 years of my life believing that I loved someone while I hated them. Hated. 
you know, and, and I would tell myself things like, oh, love the sinner but hate the sin. Am I God? I hated the person. And there's many of you and many others in the church that are hating a person, deceiving themselves by saying, I love the sinner but I hate the sin. It's possible to do. We're probably not doing it. If your heart isn't breaking for that person in sin, do you love them? If you aren't broken for the brokenness of others, do you actually even love them? Do you care about them? Please don't deceive yourself. Don't allow anyone to deceive you with false hopes. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about sanctification. I'm talking about growing closer to God. I'm talking about why did you wake up on a Sunday morning and come? We don't punch a card. We don't take attendance. Let's worship God. Let's draw closer to God. It's something we get to do. It's not something we're forced to do. It's something we get to do. It should excite us. It should fill us with hope. But we have to get over ourselves in the meantime. That's the best advice I was ever given, repeatedly, by a loved one. As she looked at me and she said, you have to get over yourself. And it sounded harsh at the time. But she was right. And she's still right. I am my own worst enemy. I am my own line of defense blocking me from doing the will of God most of the time. I am my own stumbling block. And God gave me a mate that was able to look me in the eye more than once and say, you know you need to get over yourself. When you love someone, you don't get to write off their opinion. When they're right, it hurts sometimes. But it's absolutely true, and I'm still learning how to do that. I haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. It's entirely possible that I'll realize I've been angry with someone for a decade, and I wasn't thinking about them. But when it comes up, that's when I have to forgive them. That's when I have to make it right. Sometimes they're not even alive anymore, and I have to make it right so that I can worship God uninhibited by all this filth that I want to drag into the relationship. These aren't easy things I'm saying. I realize that, and I'm not trying to accuse you of anything that I'm not saying in the mirror. I am the chief of all sinners. Here's a verse that we love to hear. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's almost, well, it is a connection between when Jesus tells us that all of this, our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The Pharisees would read the law and say, don't commit adultery. They can think whatever they want because that wasn't part of the deal. They just have to make sure that they do the physical or don't do the physical. What Jesus is saying is you need to draw so close to God that you are aware that you shouldn't even be thinking that. Because those kind of thoughts breed discontent in your relationships and they breed discontent in your relationship with God. Again, when you look at something or someone and desire it, to the point where it becomes a lustful sensation, you are saying in your heart that what God has given you isn't enough. You're being a brat. 
to put it in the lamest terms possible, you're being a brat. Don't do that. Don't be a petulant child. I bet no one's ever associated lust with being a petulant child before, but here I am. Don't be a petulant child. Don't lust after the things that God did not give you. We are not entitled to any of this. Yet God has given it to us. So we don't have to stand here and whip ourselves and feel guilty that God has given us blessings. No, celebrate the blessings. Just don't take them for granted. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I also want to point out, this is a right-handed society. I'm going to say something kind of disgusting, but I want you to understand how important a right hand is in about half the world right now. We're not a right-handed society, and the reason is, is that we have Charmin. This is toilet paper in most of the world. No joke. That's disgusting. If someone cuts off your right hand, you're automatically a second-class citizen in many countries still. You're a filthy person. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There's an implication there that you're also a second-hand citizen, or second-class citizen now. If that's what it takes. Now, here's something I would like to point out. Can your hand sin without your mind telling you to do it? Can your eye sin without your mind telling you to do it? We need to cut off those pieces of our mind, not literally. We need to remove those parts of our mind. Don't feed. Don't feed that part of your mind. You have freedom. You have freedom. I had a lot of really strict rules I didn't understand as an early child. Some of them make a lot of sense, but when no one explains them to you, it becomes a little bit confusing. But you have freedom. Sure, you can listen to that. Sure, you can watch that. Sure, you can... The parts of yourself that you feed are what become strongest. The parts of yourself that you exercise are what become strongest. Prune out the corruption of your heart and mind. Or else we'd be walking around with stumps running into each other because we'd all be blind and mute and handless and still sinning in our minds. Angry with each other because that guy's being totally dishonest or he'd be blind like me. That guy still has both his feet and I know, I know where he went. We'd still be sinning. We need to prune out this corruption in our hearts and in our minds. Divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Don't take divorce lightly. Divorce should have immense gravity. That's all I'm going to say on it. Right? Moses allowed divorce. There's exceptions for divorce in the Bible. 
but we treat it so lightly. The culture around us treats it so lightly. We have no-fault divorce. You don't even need a reason other than, oh, they don't amuse me. It's sick. Let's call it what it is. What kind of selfishness will rip apart a family for your own amusement? For your own amusement. That's what it is. If you can't commit, don't get married. If you can't get married, don't choose somebody. Stop playing games with people's heads and souls. Things happen, though. I'm not here to condemn you if you've been divorced. Life happens. You are in control of what you do. And God is bigger than my expectations or my feelings. There are people in my life that have phenomenal ministries, who have phenom- who were used of God mightily, that have a history of terrible marriages. But don't take divorce lightly. You're not happy. So what? Then be happy. If your happiness is caught up on one person making you feel sunshine and roses, do you love that person or do you love yourself? Oaths. Again, I, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But what I say... But what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Yes or no. The bigger the claim, usually the falser the statement. That's just an experienced teacher speaking. That isn't always true. But if someone emphatically has to swear upon all things that something is true, it probably isn't. Probably not. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Have integrity. Have honor. Glorify God. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, there's some people that take such a hard stance on this that they cannot go to court and be on a jury or be a witness in a courthouse because they will not swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Because that violates for them this section of Matthew. And I'll have to wrestle with that because I've been on juries before and I've never had this conviction. But reading through it the last time, I'm like, should I be on a jury? Now, is that my desire to never be given jury duty again? Because I have that desire pretty strongly. Or is that actual conviction from the Holy Spirit? Let's not confuse the two. So I'm going to actually have to pray about this and figure it out. And so will you because it's in Scripture. And you'll have to figure out, is that what Jesus means? Because as far as I know, they didn't have jury duty when Jesus was speaking. You could appeal to Caesar. We know how morally upstanding the Caesars were. 
retaliation. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and how unfortunate it is that we live that way. That's my ad on the end. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But I'm not going to do that. Why? Why? And if anyone would sue you, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him all, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go mile, one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Well, they're just going to spend it on alcohol. Do you know that? What does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with you? If you see a dirty stranger on the street and they say, do you have a dollar? You might not. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I haven't had money in my wallet for weeks. Actual cash money, and since none of those guys seem to have the swipe card thing. But if someone begs money from you, what business is it of yours? What happens after you obey this? We like to make excuses for not following God based on our logic, which God gave us so we can survive. And there is such a thing as not enabling people with addictions and things. I get that. I affirm that, actually. It's very important. I have many addicted people in my life that I love greatly. And I would not give them access to my bank account because they'll die. In the Roman world, if a soldier stops you and tells you to carry their pack or their load, you are legally required, or were legally required, to go from one mile marker to the next on a Roman road carrying their load. You were required as an oppressed people to do that. They could not make you go further, though. If they got you in the middle of mile markers, you stopped at the mile marker, right? A Roman soldier was not required to force you to do labor past one mile. But what Jesus is saying, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Because it's not about them. What this is telling me, in verses 38 through 42... is I need to examine my feelings about being used. Well, they're just using me. Probably. In order to be used, you must be useful. I'm probably being used. We want God to use us. You don't have to be everyone's doormat, though. That's not what I'm saying. Don't be everyone's doormat. Be a beacon of light and truth. But if you're worried that someone is going to mistreat your physical possessions and you put that in front of all other things, you're probably wrong. This is a section of scripture that in my uh, fleshliness, in my human experience, I'm going to say something that may rub you wrong and it should. I don't always like it. 
because it confronts me. But God wins. God wins. I need to conform my heart and my mind. Not find a way around it. Not find a justification from an extra biblical source. I need to change. And I am changing, and I'm ever changing, and praise God. But every once in a while, you will find something in Scripture, and you'll be like, wow, kind of like to never read that again. Read it again, and again, and again. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Old Testament. That was okay. But I say to you, love your enemies. Ouch. And pray for those who persecute you. Do we? It's a real question. Do we pray for those who persecute us? If you get pulled over today by someone who's in a police car having a bad day and they treat you unfairly, will you pray for them? Or will you pray for them once you're done cursing under your breath? Or will you not pray for them and hold a grudge for 40 years? Because they're just people too. Subject to make bad calls and bad decisions and to get carried away like anybody else. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you are a Christian, a little Christ, being Christ-like, one of the very last things Jesus said before dying, after being tortured to death and having his back ripped open, hung on a cross, rubbed with hyssop, which is an acid, so his sores would burn more and having his arms pulled out of socket where he has to push up on the nail hole in his feet to draw breath. One of the last things he actually said before expiring from that was, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If we're supposed to follow Christ as a model, I don't have a whole lot I can hold a grudge about. or anything I can hold a grudge about. I can recognize sin for what it is. All of us have been the victim of an injustice. And if you haven't, bless you, that's amazing. But the rest of us have all been the victim of injustices before. That does not excuse injustices. Speak out against injustice, do it. But forgive it, because you have to. Forgive the injustices. Don't say they're okay. Forgiveness is different. Pretending it's okay will cause more problems. You need to address the problem and forgive. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know how to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. I struggle with basic obedience. We think we're special by responding to God with Christians. Even though we all know Christians can be some of the most trying people on earth. So can atheists, and so can Muslims, and so can people are difficult. People are difficult to understand. Because if you've met one person, you've met one person. All people are very individualistic. It's hard to get a handle on what they're doing or what they're thinking. Working with people is inherently going to be messy. But Jesus lays out from his own words how we are to live, how we are to function as a church, what aspirations we should have. Are you going to be able to perfectly walk as Jesus walked? No. Are you going to get better at it as you go? Hopefully. It's a journey. By trying to aspire to follow the words in the Sermon of the Mount, it will draw you closer to God, making the efforts to do this. And in every instance where you willfully sinned, there was a moment where you didn't have to. I want you to think back on your life. Everything evil that comes to mind that you've been a part of, there was an instance where you could have not done it. And at one point in your life, I'm sure those instances were far more frequent than in others. As you seek after God, you will sin less. You are not going to become perfect. But that's not God's fault. It will always be ours. Sometimes you find yourself reacting in a sinful way and you were unaware of it. I'm great at that. Partly because I work with children, and the other part is I'm an emotional person. And I don't know if that's genetic or an Irish trait. I know people love to say it is, or a Swedish trait. I don't think it is. Swedish people have a tendency to be more emotionally closed off, in my experience. But then again, that may not be true at all. I only know my Swedes. I don't know your Swedes. Because people are individualistic. And I love them because they're frustrating and because they're a lot of work. It makes it worth it. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is entirely countercultural to what people want to tell you Christianity is. And not all people, of course. I'm speaking in generalities. I've heard a lot of really soft preaching. I love to listen to sermons because they relax me, they help to refocus me. In my 
I'm getting more exclusive on who I'll spend the time to listen to, though. The ability to stir my emotions has very little to do with whether you're feeding my soul. Emotions are great. Jesus gave us, or God gave us these emotions. We should use them. Jesus, as you can see, experienced a full range of emotions. He was far, far more in touch with his emotions than I am comfortable with. But if you want to dig at my heart and feed my soul, I'm more prone to go towards those pastors that are talking about the need to be broken for the brokenness of others or for those who are chasing after what pure religion looks like, which James tells us is visiting orphans and widows. There's something to be said about having a 10,000-seat church. There's probably even some positive things you could say about it. But I don't know what they are. People hungering for God, that's amazing. There's nothing evil about having a large building that people come into. But when I read the words of Jesus, he's calling us to be in relationship with people and to love people and to bring people to God so that he can change them to a person that loves people so they can go out and love people. Being disciples who make disciples, who desire to be in relationship with God. Anyway, that's what I have for you today. If you can do so without pain, would you please stand with me? Father God, I thank you. I thank you for everything you've given us, Lord. I thank you for all these beautiful scriptures that you've given us. I pray that we would divide them correctly, that we would see what your will for us is in them, that we wouldn't cherry-pick one verse to prove our points, that we would use your entirety of scripture and learn to follow you and to teach others to follow you, to unapologetically become people of love and peace who walk humbly and confront injustice without creating injustice. Father God, you are worthy of our praise, and you have all authority. And we thank you that you call us your friends and that you call us your children. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the bulletin, I'm sure we have a designated announcement person. And I forgot my bulletin back there. Willis! Ah. That brings us to our time of announcements. And I will just reiterate as Willis is coming out here, on the Tuesday after Easter, we are going to be uh, doing an in-person Bible study going through the teaching series of Ray Vanderlaan in the dust of the rabbi. It's putting the New Testament, the life of Jesus, in a Jewish lens for us to see. And it's incredible. And I would highly encourage everyone of every age group to come. And I want to uh, be respectful to people's opinions about what safety looks like.
So, um, and I don't want to do this on Sunday morning, but for that Tuesday night, if you are strictly adhering to masks and distance, I'd like you to sit on this side of the church. If you're a little looser with it, I'd like you to sit on this side of the church and we'll still be able to talk to each other while respecting the viewpoint. And I would like to see if that would help us to come together as a larger group. So that Tuesday after Easter, I would like to try that. And I would like all of you to come because this is an amazing opportunity to hear what the little people say and what the older people say and come together and fellowship as the body of Christ. So please be a part of that if you're able. That'll be Tuesday night after Easter at 7 o'clock. Sorry, there's a guitar there. Are there any announcements? Uh, I'm hard, a little hard here, and I hope you can catch them. I am too. All right. <laughs> Are you? March meals this year. Okay, of the gathered assembly at this moment, who is uh, in favor of doing March meals this year? By show of hands. Got two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think it's good. Okay. I suppose that's enough to share a meal. Okay. Thank you. Anyone else? So also, um, I have someone interested in being baptized, so I'm going to be starting a baptism and membership class. Please let me know if you're interested. I can go on and on about why it's important to be baptized. And I want to do that, but I'll wait until you're in the class. If you feel the call to be baptized, please see me. Anyone else? Is that a question? Heck, I'm, I'm oh, sorry. I shouldn't sorry. even be up here. I can't <laughs> I understand. I can't understand you guys. Uh, youth group will be at seven. 
745 at the church on Friday. On Friday. Okay, are there any uh, prayer requests or sharing you would like to do? I talked to Don yesterday. Um, he's in the hospital he, uh, this Thursday. Was it Thursday? This Thursday morning he had a pretty intense back surgery. And so there's a praise and a prayer request. He's in an incredible amount of pain. That is the prayer request part. So please be praying that he will heal quickly and that his pain will be manageable because it's his back, and I'm sure it's excruciating. The praise is, is his doctor can't believe how much he's already healed in this short amount of time. So praise God for that. But please continue to be praying for Don as he's healing from back surgery. Is he still... He's at Hammett at room 828. I believe it's room 828. But if you call their desk, you can ask to talk to Don Ash, who had back surgery, and they'll connect you right there. Any other reports from those uh, prayer requests we had on the text last week? There were a number of them. I guess no reports, I guess. I guess Mila's doing Mila, sorry. Mila Afonso uh, is doing better. Okay. And I know uh, Kelly had uh, a procedure done this week as well. And I, I think she's doing well, but I haven't heard back yet. And Juan, we've asked for safety Yes. So she's still in need of prayer, for sure. All right.
have a prayer request too for my sister or yeah my sister-in-law just talked to my to my brother Ray yesterday <clears throat> and she's in need of two units of blood and we don't know what's going on so Ray, uh, you know what I'm trying to think of her name Roxanne Troyer <laughs> isn't that amazing how you lose your thought anyone else If no one else. Okay. If you're able to, again, without pain, please stand and we'll pray together. Father God, again, I thank you for all these people and all these relationships that you've given us. I praise you that you want to hear our concerns, and I thank you for that. Father God, I pray that you would continue to be with Vicki Gilkinson. I pray that you would give her doctors wisdom. I pray that you would give her family the right attitudes and to know how to help her. I pray that you would continue to uh, heal her. I pray that she, they would be able to figure out what is wrong, Lord. Father God, I thank you that Don is healing quickly. I pray that you would help his pain levels. I pray that you would be able to restore his health. Father God, I pray that you would continue to be with the family. I pray that you would draw them closer to each other and closer to you, Lord. Father, I pray for Jenna and her lupus. pray that you would give her doctor's wisdom on what to do next. I pray that you would give her patience and understanding. And I pray that you would heal her, whatever that looks like, Lord. Father God, I pray, with, pray for Kay Ann. Kay Ann. Pray that you would help her cholesterol level to regulate, Lord. Pray that you would also give her doctors wisdom and help her to know what the right decisions are. Father God, I pray that you would be with Roxanne, Willis's sister-in-law. I pray that her doctors would be able to figure out what's going on. I pray that the blood would be readily available when she needs it. I also pray for Kelly, Lord. I pray that you would help her in her health concerns. I pray that you would just be a great healer as you are, Lord. That you'd be glorified however you decide that looks and give us the grace to worship you in spite of whatever we feel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nancy, are you leading our hymns this morning? I reckon. Thank you so much, Nancy. Um, are we in the blue hymnal? Excellent. If you would grab a blue hymnal and we can circle around the sanctuary, sing to the middle. <laughs> 